0: Welcome to the Starfire Codes podcast, where we discuss metaphysics, survival, the media, and the truth. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Demi Pitchell. We're here today with Kristen Welch. Kristen Welch is a writer, researcher, and integrative holistic health and wellness coach. She is also the co host of the Starfire Codes podcast. Welch holds an AS in healthcare management from the University of Antelope Valley in California and is currently pursuing a BA in Ayurveda wellness and integrative health at Maharishi International University. Kristen enjoys combining her knowledge of horticulture and healthcare by creating her own personal care products. She also runs a community gardening and homesteading group. Kristen Welch, Part One. Welcome, Kristen. Hi.
1: Thanks
0: to you. <laughs> so today we were going to talk a bit about um. The history behind healthcare and and get into some of that. Um, let's let's kick off with with a bit of a background on that, so that people um, are understanding, you know, where we're going from here.
1: Yeah. So basically, what it is is like I would like to kind of take us on this journey of where a lot of the healthcare lies that are foundational for much of modern health education and stuff kind of comes from so like the beginning of the 20th century um, there was a lot of things that kind of happened where that we had a lot of turning points and you know discuss things like you know louis pasteur which a lot of people anyone who's been you know even from a medical assistant to like a high school biology class to like a doctor you know people hear about him but they don't know who Antoine bechamp is you know Um, nurses hear about people like Florence Nightingale and they don't know that she actually was against the germ theory which is what is popularly taught in our institutions and so things like this and documents like the the Flexner report you know these all had a role in shaping where we are now in our current health paradigm and that's something that a lot of people including myself you know just are not aware of because it's not being discussed and and this information is being suppressed like you know many other things so it's kind of up to us to kind of learn and and teach each other if we're not going to get this from our institutions and so i think by having a solid foundation and an understanding of that it'll better prepare people to make decisions for themselves and their family and others you know especially if they're in the realm of being some kind of like you know, health practitioner in a capacity. So
0: yeah. Okay. So let's talk a bit about, you know, just to uh to kind of create that that foundational knowledge here. Let's talk a bit about Pasteur versus Bachamp and and get into, you know, what the uh the meat and potatoes of, of that entire argument was, you know, um back in time. So we're going, you know, back to the 1800s here.
1: Yeah. So um just like a quick background. So these are both um, you know, scientists. Um, in their time and Pasteur was kind of launched into like a celebrity scientist status, like, you know, similar to what a lot of the people we see today in the media and stuff like that. And the the way that this happened was he popularized what we've all come to know as the germ theory, Um, a theory that he himself even admitted on his deathbed that probably wasn't the best uh,
0: hypothesis to go with. (laughs) But, yeah. Um, what What was it that he said on his deathbed that that the terrain was everything? It's uh, yeah. The germ mi- is nothing, the, and the terrain is everything. The microbe
1: is everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah
1: the, it, it's It's interesting to know that and know that this this was a man who also, um you know, he, he told his family that he didn't want his his private journals, you know, published or released to the public. And then after he dies, they they take him to a library, and we find out afterwards that, you know, a lot of his private science and his public work did not correlate. Um, some would even go as far as accusing him of being a fraud. Plag- yeah, he
0: he he had asked his family not to put that forward and his grandson hated him and put it and, and he put it forward after um, after he died I think he he brought it to um, to France. It was somewhere in, in France um, in a in a university setting a university library setting I want to say and um, And sent in all of his journals and in all the journals he he catalogs, you know, um, basically that he was not able to replicate any of the things that he was putting forward. So it, like mm-hmm. all the journals exposed the fraud, but they weren't translated until much later. So, you know, people were able to, if they wanted to review them in French, they could, but they were not translated into English until much later.
1: Yeah, no, not his private work, but, you know, people like Ethel Hume, um, she wrote The Be- shopper pastor. I think that was, if if I'm wrong, I think it was like 1919. Yeah, so people were already questioning nothing, yeah. it back then, and then you have people like Gerald Geisen who actually got the private notebooks and studied and analyzed them and you know put that out. Um, in the 1940s, we had um Pearson, yeah, I believe that's who that was. Pearson wrote a book about Pasteur as well, so. And then um, just to go back to what we were saying, to correct what we were saying about that deathbed quote, because I don't want anyone to come back later and and have that one bite us, but it was the the microbe is nothing, the terrain is everything. So he's basically debunking germ theory. So um, one of the things that I want to highlight though, is in those notebooks, the rabies experiments, right? Mm -hmm. Because What is interesting, and this is something a lot of modern-day, I guess you know, not whistleblowers probably isn't the best term for it, but people who are just kind of analyzing these foundational claims and kind of trying to, you know, look at germ theory as a whole, when they go back to the foundational experiments for this and they see that we just take like whole infected tissue from an animal, usually like a monkey and we just kind of grind it up into a pulp and you know take that tissue smoothie and then inject it into the brain of another animal and then when that animal has symptoms we call that proof of contagion and you know on top of that we're adding poisons and things to these cultures and stuff and this is something a lot of people you know have got into again recently but it's just you know how, how do we make the determination that something is causing illness when we add all those things to it? You know,
0: Yeah, if you're adding poisons to, to it, there, there's no way to tell whether the poisons are doing it or the, the microbe that you're saying is doing it is doing it. There's no control there in the experiment.
1: Correct. And, and I think that a lot of people who think that this argument is kind of moot now or why are we talking about this now? The reason it's important is because when we're in medical school and when we're teaching these things and stuff like that, we're we're supposed to be following like a scientific method here. And we're not. And when you, when we go back to these foundational experiments and we analyze them and see what was done here, you know, you don't have to be particularly smart or well-educated in healthcare to understand this stuff. And a lot of wordy, weird things are, are, I think, used to kind of create that jargon and confusion for people so that they're discouraged from seeing, you know, all this is, is taking brain tissue and putting it in something else. And then when they get sick, we call that, you know, proof of contagion. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And, and there's not any validity to that. So once people kind of understand it in a really easy, broken down way like that, um, you kind of see where a narrative can be crafted from that. You know what I mean? And that's what happened here. So from this popularization of germ theory by Pasteur, we've seen things like, okay, so I was able to get this rabies vaccine cure. Now I need funding. This is how the Institute de Pasteur in France was created. And this, you know, where did the funding from that come from? We want to follow the money. You know what I mean? Instead of following the science, we follow the money and look where it takes us.
0: It paints a completely um, different tale.
1: The Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation had huge monetary contributions to the Institute de Pasteur, and that's how it kind of skyrocketed and like left France and started affecting um, you know, Western culture and Western medicine. And if you think about it, in terms of time or longevity or proof, we've only been discussing this theory of disease or health for a little over 100 years. Mm-hmm. In the in the terms of modern medicine, so again, we can kind of make a segue there into the Flexner report.
0: Yeah, this was completely flipped around the the way that we even look at healthcare and and look at the the cause of disease and the way to treat disease was completely flipped around on us um, about a hundred years ago, and we've mm-hmm. been um, trying to um, sift that out ever since to figure out you know what's real and what isn't. And so much of the money that came through um, for the different medical schools and, and um, implementations of curricula um, was attached to, you know, people who were trying to push a certain agenda to push a certain type of medical care forward. So people were learning about that type of, of medical care, about allopathy um, at that point, and, and they were trying to, you know, create infrastructure to phase out anything that was holistic which was the the paradigm for treatment at that point so Mm -hmm. you know when we look at it that way and we realize that this was you know a concerted effort to push out the way that we were doing things in favor of a different way we start to uh to question why because it was also you know stated that that money wouldn't come forward to those institutions unless they adopted the new curriculum
1: absolutely and at that time if you look at the numbers, um, actually I had some notes here about some of the ways that this affected this, um, out of all of the institutions, like when the Flexner report was put out, it basically left it to where there, there were almost no allopathic, or I'm sorry, no holistic schools that were gonna be left. It was all gonna be the new allopathic model replaced with you know the idea of biomedicine and they knew this they knew what they were doing several things also went up around the same time like the ama was created in 1905 just just before that happened i'm sorry the ama created the council of pharmacy and chemistry in 1905. so this was only five years before the flexner report and if you create a council on pharmacy and chemistry you need to kind of get rid of like the antagonistic information that's going to counter that and that would be like holistic medicine you know what i mean um there's a lot of ways that this was put into motion like i said the carnegie foundation was tied to this the rockefeller foundation was tied to this something a lot of people don't realize when we talk about the beginnings of this and the flexner report and how this all shaped everything abraham flexner was not even he wasn't even in medicine or anything. His brother, Simon Flexner was, and even he was, you know, performing the same fraudulent experiments that Pasteur was, um, but just with polio, you know, he used a monkey model. Simon Flexner retired in 1935 as the director of the institution, the Rockefeller Institution of Medical Research. So these people are all connected, and you know, they kind of helped get all this stuff off the ground with all of their funding. And if you look at the, the similarities between then and now for how it's like this good old boys club, you know, like the, the you know, one big club and you ain't in it kind of thing. It, it's very apparent that that's what it was then. And that's what it is now. We'll look yeah, at the even
0: um, even at the time, you know, when when we're talking about um, different, um, paradigms coming down and being seen as, you know, prescience instead of programming. If you look at the Huxleys, this this is apparent as well. So you know, you've got Aldous Huxley writing Brave New World, but you, you also have um, Julian Huxley, who um, was the godfather of transhumanism, who was his brother. And, you know, obviously they're sharing information and everything and and everyone, you know, um, touts Aldous Huxley as as having been, um, you know, clairvoyant or prescient or or something like that, having some sort of foreknowledge of what would happen. But if he's being fed what the agenda would be or should be or is or or, you know, um, the the pathway Toward um, what the goal point would be, where the goalposts lie, and he's reporting back in a structure of of creating a, a fictitious narrative surrounding this that becomes required reading across, you know, all kinds of, of schools, um, you know, where it embeds itself into our cultural understanding of of what was um, of what was expected to come then when we see this emerge everyone's like oh you know i remember reading about that you know um so and so predicted this you know and and you know um they're more apt to accept it so you see this with with any kind of predictive programming or revelation of the method that kind of a thing so it could be you know part of the way that they were um, utilizing the flexner report was to create that kind of um feeling around it so that when when you um when you saw what you were seeing, it would kind of beg the question of leading back to that report and, and you would um, it would reiterate the fallacies within that report um, as opposed to you know making people question, okay, you know where did this come from and, and how did you know, how did he know so much about this and comparatively what is happening here, right? So you have to put on a different hat and look through a different lens in order to even see that information that way you know, and and in a situation where we're all taught to trust authority, we're just trusting these these reports and these books and things like this, that they are what people say they are, that this is a this is a fiction novel. And this this is a true report based on facts, you know, and 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 people are taking that information in that way, not questioning, you know, whether that's the truth or not, and not, you know, wearing a different hat and a different lens to look at that information in a way where we are picking it apart. And, um, and judging for ourselves, you know, what the intention was behind this. And, and, and sure, we can never really know what somebody's intention is, but, you know, we, um, we need to, to think about that as we're taking in information. We need to really, you know, um, make it a point to, um, to look at information in that way and not just accept whatever's being presented to us as rote.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's not, it's not prescience. What you're doing is writing a playbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. And then this stuff, like you said, it's just regurgitated as the gospel. And um, like, I, this is, brings me back to the issue that we have with our foundational uh, medical education and things like that. We're just regurgitating things and and having our education through rote memory. There's no true understanding about the nature of the body and how it works. It's just here to teach people to take this pill to suppress this symptom for this disease, you know, and turn a profit out for it. <laughs> that's all. This, that's all that is and when you start to look at it that way and you see things that way and you understand how all of these narratives and things and playbooks and ideas have fit together for the last 100 plus years it it starts to make a lot of sense this you know this isn't a conspiracy they're just telling you what they're doing yeah we it's just we that use nobody our... wants to listen uh,
0: uh... It's the way that that we've used media, you know, since its inception, really. So, you know, Mm -hmm. since the printing press, you know, you have stories that are being doled out to people um, in whatever capacity and and they're believing it to whatever capacity that they are, but it can be used as predictive programming. It can be used as revelation Mm -hmm. of the method. It can be used to program a society into taking in information in a certain way as opposed to another, especially if they believe that, that that's true and they take it for rote so you know moving that forward in time and And taking that into into radio and into television and into the internet you know it's it's any story that somebody crafts that has enough push behind it you know um and especially if you look at you know bernaysian technique behind that you know at the turn of the century which is exactly when this was going on we're talking about the flexner report and all this like um bernays changed the shape of the way that we take in information because he was um the godfather of propaganda and and freud's nephew he built freud um, you know Freud. Freud wouldn't have been um, as well known as he was if it weren't for Bernays, his nephew. So you know, when when we start to look at the way that that we take in information past that point, and and the way that we were told things were, or they were not, and we took them for rote. You know, we really need to examine that because that's exactly you know the point in time when when this became bigger within Western culture. It was already it had already emerged. Um, in, uh, in, in Russia through Eisenstein and, you know, through um, juxtaposition in film where you're seeing um, different elements of film coming together to create a mood behind that that would influence people. So if you change out the sound from one piece to another, you have a different feel surrounding it and you can get people to feel a different way so they'll react a different way to what you're presenting to them. And if you're watching television, it still obviously occurs. You know, you're you're um, you're taking something in, there's a, a big majestic fiery piece behind it, music piece behind it, and you're feeling in a certain way, you know, like that's how we take in our sports, right? We have these like big, majestic, fiery sports music pieces behind whatever somebody's saying, and it could be nothing that they're saying, but we, we feel a certain way about it and, and get emotional about it. And then in in the interim, like in, in between um, you know, the the cutting to the sporting events, we have, you know, um we have ads to, to join the military and that's all interspersed in there. So that's to create that kind of like fiery teamwork kind of energy. And then, then you see these ads for the military. And while you're fired up about watching your sports program, then you, (laughs) then you're, you're fired up about, about joining the military as well. So it's, it's all done in this way to evoke a certain response from you. And if you're not aware of the way that the grammar within media is being used to do that, you, um you're at a disadvantage because you could be emotionally swayed in one way or another to feel and think certain things and and you you're being led down a certain path and we can see that over and over and over again in society not just the past few years where it's been really obvious and prevalent but you know before that the the buildup to this you can see it and and that's that's where we're taking this. So so let's get back to the Flexner report. Let's talk about what the Flexner report went over and and um and take it from there.
1: Yeah. So what this was is basically the the report was done it was the United States and Canada and Abraham Flexner basically set out to kind of go around and do like a survey of all of the schools and how they were, you know, the model of teaching they were doing and stuff like that. And basically it was um, a way of establishing like a like a gold standard for how the schools were gonna teach and what they were gonna put out and stuff like that. And um, what it did was that if you didn't capitulate to what these standards were gonna be or whatever, then you lost your funding and stuff like that. And if it was up to flex there, um 20 states would have been without a single medical school after this wow. was put out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so from there, you can see a drastic decline in holistic care and natural treatments and remedies. This was all replaced with, uh, you know, big pharma oil products, things like that. And that's a whole nother thing that you can get into because, you know, again, this isn't a conspiracy theory. You can see the direct correlation and ties between when this was phased out, the same time we, we see in the petroleum industry erected and you know capitalized on for pharmaceuticals which you have to again ask who came up with the idea that these things were okay to put into our body and um so basically what they've done is taken the word of these you know robber baron funders and you know fraudulent report from a man who again had nothing to do with medical science nothing healthcare he was just like a like an educator so why was this important role given to him? You know, it, it, you also have to look at the ties of his brother and the type of the work that he did. And, you know, the fact that this person was the director of the Rockefeller Institute. Um, it kind of seems to kind of fit in perfectly with, with an entire rollout. Um,
0: there yeah, was it seems also like a thing- campaign. It's built like a campaign. So you're, you're but hitting it at different angles to, to get... Um, Public consent and and public opinion to shift in a certain direction, utilizing the uh, the different arms of that that they had going on. So whether they're putting something out informationally, they're putting something out, you know, in the media to um, to hit more with um, with your emotions, which was just actually happening at that time. It wasn't something that people ordinarily did. That came later. Um, a lot of what um, what advertising was up until that point was was just informational they realized that people would buy more when when you had a more um, emotional sort of an attachment to what was happening mm-hmm. and that was during that period of time and, and it was very much tied into Bernays at this point as well
1: yeah and you and you could see that now again like what was being conjured up during the whole pandemic you know fear and you know again we we have these trust in these institutions and when they put forth these informations and like this, this predictive programming is just rolling out and you can see the patterns and see what's going on. And you see kind of to what you said, how this mood is created. And I think that they, that you know, known for quite a long time that when people are living in a state of fear and they're easily controlled, um, you know, looking for gurus or you know outsourcing their power to other people instead of you know trusting the person in the white coat to to do what's best for them instead of trusting like that inner intelligence of the body and our emotions and how we think has a lot to do with this you know for every state of you know emotion or consciousness within ourselves there is a corresponding state of physiology And, you know, you can call that new age medicine or whatever you want or something. This has been known for for hundreds of years. You know, like the the Veda texts, Ayurveda teaches this, you know, about this inner intelligence and this inner, you know, consciousness of the body and how it affects each corresponding state of physiology. So when you're living in a constant state of fear and and, you know, putting your trust in these other people and stuff, you're taking your power away. And you're more susceptible to to being sick and and having a state of disease. You know, um, this this isn't this isn't really hard to understand. So, if if you're living like that and you're exposed to these you know toxins and things and you're already in a state of of disease in your mind, you know where is your body's you know best chance to to kind of you know fight these things off or heal itself or um
0: you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, even in the just... development of medicine, um, when you look at the way that um that medicines are brought to market and and the um, the rigors that they take to test them against you know what we what we understand as um, as the gold standard for you know um the percentage that they have to hit in order for the thing to be considered um, effective effective, yeah, yeah. So um, when you look at that and, and you understand that what they're measuring against is placebo, the mind, the mind's ability to control the body, and placebo is 30% effective. So they have to prove higher than 30% efficacy. But if we take that back a second and we look at they have to prove that it's more effective than your own mind at curing whatever it is. And it's your own mind that's causing... The issue a lot of the time, you know, or exacerbating the issue or creating, you know, a a situation where um, it's sort of begging the question of whether you get sick because you're expecting to get sick, you know, so you could be compounding that. So, you know, it may not be all the mind. Something else may be occurring. You may be, you know, exposed to toxins. You may have some sort of deficiency. Some sort of trauma may have occurred. It could be any of these things. But because your mind is primed to be fearful and to think it's XYZ that's causing it, you're already, you know, in a state of, of there's a 30% chance you could create that, you know, placebo works the opposite way too. You could make yourself sick in that way, you know, as opposed to being able to overcome it 30% of the time, just by thinking it through, just by thinking a sugar pill is going to cure you, right? Right so so when we look at that and we know that that is the gold standard for determining efficacy of a drug that's in trial we have to really consider that and we have to consider what really does make us sick
1: absolutely or to to touch on that more if you want to talk about efficacy and you know being able to prove or say things like that when we're having you know no controls or anything like that at least it leads us to ask the question again how much of medical literature, or you know, peer-reviewed studies, or any of the things that we get our medical information from, how much of that has been you know infiltrated or affected by you know corporate or pharmaceutical and institutional interest and, and financial influence, um, or you know, peer review rings, broad things like that. Uh, how how does that affect the paradigms, the medical paradigms that we sh- that we you know shaped, and how we think the body. Um, you know, takes care of itself, and what makes us sick, and, and what those mechanisms are, and, and you know, I feel like that if it doesn't fit within that uh, generally accepted paradigm of uh, whether it's the germ theory of disease or you know what some other model, we're not looking at things like um, pheromones or um, you know, stuff like that enough. And I feel like if it doesn't fall under the accepted umbrella of a, a body of re- certain body of research, that it's just not talked about, or if it is there's no eyes or attention on it because, you know, it's not popular. It doesn't go along with the current model or paradigm. Um,
0: or, or if or it garners it attention
1: against it.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it garners attention and doesn't fit the agenda, the person gets canceled. So that Absolutely. happens a lot too. Yeah. So, you know, um,
1: any and sort what happened of...
0: to you? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So the backstory here, um, you know, I, I was talking about, um, the, the studies that Andreas Nowak put forward, he was a, a graphene expert. And because I was talking about, you know, what a doctor had said about his, um, his own field of study, I was canceled off of Twitter since, you know, since the, the changeover, I've been reinstated to Twitter, but, um, but yeah, this is what was happening at the time. And, um, and I was not allowed to talk about Dr. Nowak on Twitter at all. So um, yeah, my, my, um, <laughs> just for quoting a doctor, I got canceled
1: yeah there seems to be a lot of control around this kinds of alternate health paradigm conversations they just really don't want people talking about this and look at why look how hard they worked in concert with all of these different organizations and and things you know tying into one another to suppress information about health and replace it with you know a different paradigm one that they can control one that makes them money one that you know keeps us dependent on that white coat you know telling us what to do and i think that's actually kind of a scary notion for a lot of people because it means taking personal responsibility for your own health instead of outsourcing it to somebody else and you know if you do get sick or befall disease or something like that instead of saying you know this is your fault and why didn't you you know catch this in you know advance with this test or this thing or that um instead you know you got me sick, someone at work got me sick, you know, the kid came home from daycare and they were sick. Like you have to instead take personal responsibility for yourself and your family. What foods are you eating? Um, You know, what toxins are you exposed to? What level of EMF are you exposed to? What mitigation measures are you taking? Are you outside exercising, you know, in the sun, things like that. None of that stuff was really, you know, promoted during the pandemic as a way to heal or help yourself it was be scared of your neighbor stay six feet away you know like don't experience someone else's aura and consciousness and stay out of close proximity to people and you know they want everyone to just be scared of each other and scared of themselves and and look what it's done to everybody. Look how easily they were able to craft a narrative and use it to manipulate
0: people. To hear part two of this interview, please subscribe at starfirecodes.com.